All right, tonight we are going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, the Sermon on the Mount. I have been going through the Sermon on the Mount in recent times as I've been asked to cover for a service. And tonight's text, Matthew five seventeen to 20, is a continuation of where I left off the last time I was up here. I'm trying to make my way through that, and uh, we'll probably do it out, you know, <laughs> when I'm probably won't even make it through, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The Beatitudes describe what a disciple is, those who are Jesus' followers. They are the inner... Uh, their inner character traits that our Lord desires to develop in his disciples. These are character traits that we are to aim for in our new life in Christ as we live in this world. Then our Lord described the influence and impact his disciples are to have to those in the world. And he used a, two powerful metaphors, that of salt and that of light. He said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And those who are disciples of Jesus Christ are to have this kind of impact and influence in the society around them. To be that of salt and to be that of light to the world. Now, in this section that we're going to look at this evening, verses 17 to 20, Jesus is going to talk about the disciples' righteousness And relationship to the law. These verses are a prelude to what Jesus is going to share in the rest of chapter 5. After this section, Jesus is going to teach on the true intent of many passages from the Old Testament. He's going to give the deepest meaning of those scriptures. And he's going to instruct on the penetrating heart manner that they were intended to teach us. And how they are to touch the inward part of a person and not just the outward. And our Lord is going to teach how he came to establish the scriptures. How he came to establish them in a real sense that they were intended all along. The scriptural intent of what they were to teach us. And he's going to clear up all these these different interpretations that had developed by the scribes and the Pharisees. As Jesus was going through this next section on the sermon, uh, there had to be a lot of people who were listening who thought that his teaching was radical. And in the minds of many... They must have thought, is Jesus a threat to the law? Is he wanting to destroy the law and end it? How does this new teaching relate to the law of Moses? 
This new teaching is different from the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. And our Lord is going to reveal that he came to be the fulfillment of the law, as the fulfillment of the law. Our Lord is going to show to clear up what the people thought of his ministry and his message and what his ministry and his, and his message really was. And this section in Matthew that we're going to look at this evening, it's very important because it highlights the connection between the New and the Old Testament scriptures. So in view of all this, let's read tonight's passage. Matthew five seventeen to 20. It says, uh, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So in our passage tonight, given at a simple division, in verses 17 and 18, we have Jesus' relationship to God's law. And in verses 19 and 20, the disciples' relationship to God's law. Let's look at Jesus' relationship to God's law. In verse 17, we have the mission of Jesus. As we look at verse 17, we see that the Lord is speaking, first of all, about the purpose of his coming. He says in, in this verse that what he did not come to do and then what he, what he did come to do. Let's look first at what he did not come to do. Our Lord says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. When Jesus says do not think, it was probably because there were people who were thinking that he was bringing in something entirely new. There were some who felt that, that he was opposed to the law, since his interpretations were not the same as they had heard from the Pharisees. And on top of that, Jesus was accused many times for violating the law. So they may have thought that he was out to destroy the law. And the thing is, our Lord, he never violated the law as it was intended. He violated the law based on their interpretation of the law. A good example is in the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law was, was what Jesus was most accused of, of violating. He was accused of healing on the Sabbath day. Also remember when Jesus' disciples were going through the wheat fields on the Sabbath, and, and 
one of them picked a, 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 some of the wheat. The Pharisees accused Jesus for his disciples not washing their hands when they ate. And it wasn't that the disciples did not wash their hands. The problem was that they did not wash according to the ceremonial ritual that the Pharisees had developed. So Jesus was not breaking the law. He broke the traditional interpretation of the law. And he is going to clear up some of those issues in the next section of Matthew after this one that we're looking at tonight. But in this section, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He wanted to make that clear. He wanted to make that clear to prevent anyone from thinking that he was an enemy of Moses or, or, and the prophets. Notice the word uh, came here in verse 17 and the word come. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. They're both the same word in the Greek and they speak of the very important relationship of the mission of our Lord. There's a great significance by Jesus saying he came. And this is understood to be a messianic reference. In other words, Jesus was the one that many passages in the Bible spoke of. Jesus was the one that Moses promised would come in Deuteronomy 18.15, where it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall bear. He's the one that John the Baptist would refer to as the coming one in Matthew 11.3. And he's the one when after uh, he fed the 5,000 in John 6.14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So come and came, they're important words that express the messianic reference of his coming. And they also indicate, they also tell us that he was preexistent before he came. When Jesus said, I have come, he's implying that he existed before he came. And he existed before he was sent. He existed as the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He came at a, at a specific moment in time. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 declares, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is is a person who had control of his destiny because he was the son of God incarnate in the flesh and he came to redeem us. Notice the word destroy there in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy. It comes from two words. To loosen, to loosen and down. To loosen down or to demolish as in taking down a structure. 
So Jesus used this word in Mark 13, 2, when he predicted the destruction of the temple. He said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And in our passage, the idea of destroy is to abolish, to pull down, to do away with, to put an end to, to make useless or to cancel. So our Lord, he's saying, do not think that I came to pull down. Do not think that I came to abolish. Do not think that I came to destroy or do away with the law or the prophets. See, Jesus was about to come down in a strong manner on the scribes and Pharisees and their traditions regarding uh, several Old Testament passages. And some might go away with the impression that he was rejecting the Mosaic law and the teachings of the prophets. But he was not doing that. When our Lord deals with these issues in the next section on the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to give the, the intent, the true intent and teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, which is, is incredibly exciting when you really think about it, to know that, that Jesus gave us the most insightful and perceptive way of what the Old Testament was intended to teach us all along. I mean, we are able as believers in this day and age in church, in this time in church history to connect the Old and the New Testament in wonderful, insightful, powerful ways. Looking to the scripture in this manner is intended when we study in this way and we look at it, it's intended to be personal and, and internal and as a result, vital in our progress in our walk with our Lord. And we're, we're blessed to be able to do this in this day and age. So Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. And some might have thought that he was promoting to overthrow the uh, uh, promoting an overthrow of the Old Testament law. That's what a lot of them probably thought. And you think about it, there's you have people like Stephen in Acts chapter six, who was accused of speaking against the law. Paul was accused of opposing the law. In Acts 18, 12 and 13, it says, When Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the, uh, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Paul was accused of that also. And Jesus had a vital mission to accomplish. But it was not to destroy the law of the prophets. When he mentions the law and the prophets, he's, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. The Hebrews saw the law in about four different ways. They saw the law as the Ten Commandments. The law also was the first five books of Moses. The Pentateuch that the Jews referred to as the Torah. It was also defined as the entire Old Testament. One of the usual ways that the Jews described the Old Testament was they would refer to it as the law and the prophets. 
They would divide it into two parts, the law, the Pentateuch, and the five books of, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and the prophets, or the rest of the Old, Old Testament. And the combination is a way, it's a way to referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Um, remember that the early Christians had only what we call the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. They did not have the Gospels. They did not have Acts. They did not have Romans. They did not have the rest of the Old Test- of the New Testament. But there's also another definition of the law, which I believe Jesus is going to confront in the next cha- uh, section of chapter 5. And I, that is the, the oral or the scribal law. See, the scribes were the scholars who wrote down the law or the additions to the law. And the Pharisees came along and were the ones who kept the traditions of the oral law. They, these were basically the interpretations of the opinions of the Pharisees on the written law. And what happened throughout time was the heart of the law of God had become so bogged down by all these instructions and all these interpretations. It had just blown out of proportion. And there were all these things like you cannot carry a dried fig on the Sabbath day because it was considered a burden. Things like not being able to put on false teeth because it was considered a burden on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to clear up and get to the heart of many of these matters. In the next section of Matthew 5 here, he'll, he'll be addressing stuff like, he'll say, you have heard that it was said of old. But I say to you, and he'll, and he'll get to the intent, he'll clear up a lot of this stuff. So Jesus did not come to destroy or set aside either of the two, the law or the prophets. He definitely declared his full observance of the whole Testament canon. Hebrews 10.7 tells us, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And it's tragic. It's tragic when anyone thinks lightly of the Old Testament or question any part of its validity in our day that we live in, in the church age we live in right now. If you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus made many, he, he, he made many of the portions of the, he referred to many of the portions of the Old Testament. R.C. Lansky put it nicely. He said, it is one grand unit all in perfect harmony, and the prophetic books substantiate and expound the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so our Lord is saying, I did not come to destroy the authority and principles of the Old Testament. In the last part of verse 17, our Lord reinforced the correct purpose of his mission. Notice what he says. He says, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. The word fulfill, it literally means to fill up something, like filling up a jar with water. The use here can 
have two basic meanings. To fulfill in the sense of actions or events that are required by the law or foretold by the prophets. Or to fill up in the sense of making complete what was not yet complete. And there are a couple of ways that fulfill has been understood. Jesus is the fulfillment. Some look at it as Jesus is the fulfillment of all the requirements of the old covenant. The law of Moses. The law that nobody could ever truly, totally keep. He could because he was the perfect one. Jesus came to fulfill what the Old Testament law and instructions all pointed. Or it could mean that Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. He's the center of the scriptures. He's the fulfillment because he's the theme. He's what they were writing about. He's the one that they were predicting. In John 5.39, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Our Lord is saying, I'm the subject, I'm the great subject of the scriptures that you, that you say you searched and that you say you love. They were written about me. In John 5.46, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they claimed to be those who believed in Moses and kept the law of Moses, Jesus said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There's also the account after the resurrection, after Jesus rose from the dead when he was walking on the Emmaus Road. Remember, he was walking with a couple of the disciples and he told them uh, they didn't recognize him. And he told them as they were still all mourning over his death, he said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then Jesus says, it's, and then the scripture says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh my gosh, can you imagine that, what that Bible study was like? He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have been sitting in that Bible study. What a, it's amazing it probably was. So Jesus is the theme. He's the subject. He's the center of the scriptures. And he came to fulfill. The Old Testament also had a prophetic purpose that was fulfilled in Jesus. You have scriptures, for example, like Micah 5.2, that predicted Jesus' place of birth, where it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You have prophetic passages on the crucifixion, like Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, where it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. It's talking about the crucifixion. So the, the Greek word in our verse here, fulfill, used here in our passage tonight, it, it's used several times in Matthew also. And each time it refers in the sense of Jesus accomplishing the, attention, the intention of his heavenly father as it was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, uh, Matthew one twenty two, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream, 
The passage says, Joseph, uh, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, and she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's used in uh, Matthew 3.15 when John the Baptist tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And Jesus said, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, there's the word, all righteousness. In Matthew 26.54, when Jesus' disciples tried to rescue him from those who were betraying him in the garden, our Lord uh, Our Lord stopped them and he said, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? There's the word again, that it must happen thus. So it's all over Matthew. Also in Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. These are incredible claims, you guys, that that incredible claims that anyone could ever make about themselves. And our Lord made them about himself and they proved to be true. He did not come to this earth to set the law aside or the prophets aside, but he came to fulfill them. He also fulfilled the Old Testament in other ways. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it pointed to him. He, seems, he, he is seen in the types of the feasts. And our Lord's claim is amazing and we should be in awe of how matchless our Lord is through these claims. To know that they're true. To know that we can see them, what prophets and kings have longed to see. So verse 17 gives us a strong contrast between false assumptions about why Jesus came and the real reasons. He came to fulfill. Matthew eleven thirteen says to us, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. They both pointed to Jesus, and he's clearing up any misunderstanding. Notice what he says in verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This speaks of the endurance of the scriptures. When Jesus says, for assuredly there in verse 18, or as the King James says, verily, it's a strong term of seriousness and importance. In the Greek, the word means amen meaning to be firm, steady, or truthworthy. So when Jesus says, for assuredly, he's guaranteeing the truth of what he's saying and affirming his authority. And notice what uh, he says, for assuredly, I say to you. And that's kind of interesting because when he began the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, with the Beatitudes, he spoke in the third person. He said, blessed are the poor. And then as he continued, he addressed the second person. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And now he zeroes in in the first person with authority. And he says, I say to you. It's interesting. 
But no scribe or rabbi spoke with this kind of authority. Jesus did because he was the son of God. In fact, the reaction when Jesus finishes this entire Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, 28 and 29 Uh, The reaction was that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice he says, till heaven and earth pass away in the middle of 18 there. Jesus is referring to the end of history of this present world. The end of the physical universe. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And what our Lord is saying is that the law and the prophets, God's word, would outlast the universe, which, as Peter said here, will, will cease to exist. It points to the end of created things. Till heaven and earth pass away, it's a figure of speech for permanency. It will all pass away, but God's word is far more permanent than that. The word will endure forever. It's the same message as Isaiah 48, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It's the same message of Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And it's the same message as in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, where it says the grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of God endures forever. The preservation of the word of God throughout history has been a wonderful testimony of the prophesied permanency of the scriptures. There has been no book, you guys, that has been so attacked as the Bible And yet we have seen it endure so well throughout time. An example of the endurance of the Bible was when the French philosopher, Francois Voltaire, uh, he set out to destroy Christianity and and the Bible. This was around the end of the 1600s into the 1700s. And uh, this guy, Voltaire, deeply hated Christianity. He said that it took 12 men to start Christianity and that it would take only him to stop it. Voltaire said that within a hundred years there would be no copies of the Bible left except copies in a museum. But when those hundred years came and went, the word of God was still thriving, but Voltaire was not. At an auction, all Voltaire's writings sold for a grand total of two dollars. Well, at that same auction, at that same auction, a copy of the Bible sold for $1 million. And you know what's really interesting? Uh, Voltaire's house was later used for the Geneva Bible Society to store copies of the Bible. And our Lord was right. The word of God will endure forever. It was Voltaire who was wrong. Our Lord goes on to say in verse 18... One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot, it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle refers to a tiny mark, a horn attached to some Hebrew letters to keep 
um, them from being confused with other letters. Um, do you guys want to see what a jot and a tittle looks like? Turn to Psalm 119. Real quick, yeah, we have time. Turn to Psalm 119. And as you're turning there, Psalm 119 is divided into 22 sections, each beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the different sections contain a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now look at verse 73 of Psalm 119, where a new section of a new Hebrew letter begins. Now, do you see that strange little comma-like mark by verse 73? That's the smallest Hebrew letter in the alphabet, the letter Yod. Not Yoda, okay, Yod. Now look, at verse, uh, look above verse 81. Do you see that backward C shape? Do you see how it's rounded at the bottom? That's the Hebrew letter Kap. But now as you look, at the Hebrew letter just above verse 9, go to verse 9, you can see another backward C shape. The letter Beth. But do you notice the difference? The letter Cap, verse 81, is smooth, smoothly curved on the bottom. The letter Beth, verse 9, is a, has this tiny little stroke at the bottom. Try and wipe it off. It's not lint, Okay. And that, that little stroke is what makes the difference between one letter and another. Just that one little thing there. And that tiny little stroke is called the little horn, or what we call a tittle. It's the tiny mark that makes the difference between one letter and another. So our Lord is saying that not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And the endurance of the word does not just speak of only preserving the word, but also what it sets out to accomplish. In other words, every prophecy and every promise of the word will be fulfilled. Every judgment and every blessing of the word will come to pass. And it will be fulfilled to the minutest detail. For every jot will be fulfilled. Every tittle will be fulfilled. The word of God does and will perform perfectly. It doesn't deviate one iota. All hell can rise against the word of God, but it will still accomplish what it sets out to do perfectly. Isaiah 55:11 says, "So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth; it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it." So our Lord is declaring when heaven and earth itself has finally passed away, it will be known to all that not a single word that he has spoken will have failed. And all that the word of God says will have come to pass. Jesus is affirming the lasting authority of God's word. And if we call ourselves Christians... If we say that we're believers in Jesus Christ, then we are to take all of the Bible seriously. Every jot, every tittle. And this is the problem that I see in so many so-called Christians in this day and age that we live in. There are many who do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And that's a serious problem. 
And what is happening in many churches is that they are functioning by opinion and allowing society to influence instead of the authority of the scriptures. And the result is that many churches are being swayed by political correctness instead of standing on what the scriptures declare. And that's dangerous. And we're letting things come in from society in many churches. And, you know, now you, you know, you're going to, you're seeing more homosexuality and stuff like that being uh, accepted. And, and it's, it's, it's political correctness. It's society dictating for a lot of people. It's opinion. That's not what we're not standing. They need to stand on the scriptures. We need to stand on the scriptures. With all the complexities in this day that we live in, it's more vital than ever that we study and we apply the scriptures with extreme care and to make sure that we're not living by opinion and what by society dictates. In verses 19 and 20, we have the disciples' relationship to God's law. Look at verse 19. He says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men's soul shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The word therefore... Wherefore, he says, therefore, it brings in the conclusion of what Jesus lays out for his disciples. The conclusion of the power of the permanence of scripture and that the disciples own approach to it. And Jesus is laying out the important connection between the law of God and the kingdom of God. Notice what he says. He says, whoever breaks... It means to relax. It means to loosen, to set free, to unite, or to set aside. And when, when he says that, it's not necessarily breaking whoever breaks in the sense of, of disobeying the law, but it, it speaks more of invalidating or weakening its requirements by a different interpretation and teaching others to do the same. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. And our Lord says that that person, that person shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he's addressing those who are his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why he says they shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And I believe our Lord is saying, don't set aside one of the least of the commandments, the requirements. Again, I like the way uh, R.C. Lenski put it. He said, we may set aside a word of God by our own ignorance, wrong interpretation, or manipulation for selfish or ulterior reasons, even by teaching others to do the same. And Jesus is connecting what he declared in verse 17 by making a disciple accountable to not weaken or loosen the word of God as the Pharisees had done with their interpretation. So there's a connection in verse 20, uh, 17 where he's saying, I, I did not come to break. And now he's saying, don't break. 
So there's that connection there. The least position or importance in the kingdom of heaven is threatened as the outcome is what he's saying here. But the flip side is whoever does, whoever obeys. In other words, there's, there's personal obedience and, 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 and teaches by word and conduct. That person teaches by word and conduct the law of God. And he says that person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And as our Lord came to fulfill the entire Old Testament, those who are his disciples, if we're going to be his disciples, we're going to adhere to, we're going to cleave to, we're going to cleave to the, the total contents of all the fulfillment by Jesus. A disciple of Jesus will not even set aside even the least part. Now in verse 20, our Lord declares the requirements for heaven, the requirement for heaven. Notice what he says here in verse 20. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And it it made me think as I was looking at this, how nowadays we have a negative picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. When we think, when we hear the word, you know, you're a Pharisee or, you know, we, we have this negative picture because of what we know here about the scriptures and what Jesus Christ said about them. And because of the higher standard of righteousness that we have, like in this passage that is revealed here. But this was not true back in that day. Jesus saying this in verse 20, when he said that, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it must have blown away his disciples and those who heard him say this. Those who were listening, it must have just blown them away as they heard Jesus say this because the scribes and the Pharisees were viewed as, they were viewed as the highest level of human righteousness. And Jesus declares that the righteousness of those who would follow him must surpass the righteousness of even the scribes and the Pharisees or they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes were the most prominent scholars of the law of God. And the Pharisees, they had the reputation of being the most commendable models of Judaism. The Pharisees were the one who pursued in life to conform to the various commands of the law and they promoted them out in public life. So for our Lord to state that the righteousness they possessed was inadequate for allowing an entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it must have just been astonishing. That declaration to those who heard. The people thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best of the best. And our Lord is being is letting people know that the best examples of outward human righteousness, the the, the best example that they can think of is still not good enough to get them into heaven. A person's righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Righteousness obtained from good works is not going to get a person into heaven. Righteousness obtained from attending church 
is not going to get a person into heaven. Being a member of Calvary Chapel Pasadena will not get us into heaven. Getting baptized will not get a person into heaven. When I was a baby, they took me to Alvera Street and my uncle burned me with a cigarette as they were baptizing me there. (laughs) If I would have died, I wouldn't have made it to heaven. (laughs) The human righteousness that a person may think comes from education or from culture or from being, you know, helping humanity. It's not going to get a person into heaven. Many times you hear of of wealthy people who, when they die and they eulogize them and they talk about them and they say that they gave all this money to this cause or that cause. And many times they're referred to it, you know, they say he was a saint. You cannot gain entrance to heaven that way. And maybe you're thinking at this point, well, what's wrong with human righteousness? And I I partly agree with you. When you think about it, I mean, it would be far worse condition without people that have a lot of these things that we just mentioned. It's definitely far better to be surrounded by someone who's honest, someone who's good, you know, rather than a dirty, rotten scoundrel who's, you know, even if they're not Christians. But the point is that human goodness is not good enough for entrance into heaven. Even though it will be better for a person in this life, it will not see a person to heaven. Isaiah emphasizes this truth when he says, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. So Jesus was not saying that in order for a person to get to heaven... He has to have this somewhat higher degree of the same kind of righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees had. Our Lord was not, was, he was saying that if a man is to get to heaven, he must have a different and better righteousness than these men were showing. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in for our entrance into heaven. The point is that we have to look outside of ourselves For this righteousness. Look at the Apostle Paul. Who was a man who was known as being blameless with respect to the law. He said said in Titus 3, 5 and 6. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. When we give our lives to him as our Savior and Lord, he gives us a righteousness. An imputed righteousness that meets heaven's requirement. That's the righteousness we need. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul also spoke of this in Romans 10, 3 and 4. When he said of Israel, uh, he said, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness are seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
So the Pharisees and the scribes' conformity to God's law, it was an external one. It did not reach down to the heart. And you see, God is concerned with the obedience, for, for our obedience to his law. He is concerned about that, but he wants an obedience. He wants an obedience from us that comes from within, that comes from the heart. This is what Jesus will be dealing with in the, in the rest of chapter 5. He was not giving a new law, but calling his disciples to a new level or to a level of obedience that, of the, to the law that went past the outward and got to the core, got to the heart, to the intention of what the law was indicating. And this is what's awesome about the word of God, people. It gets to the core of our life if we allow it to transform us. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. But then it says, And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in the next section of chapter 5, for example, it says that we should not murder, but Jesus showed that, that this means not even calling someone a name in anger. He gets to the core. He gets to the heart. The law says that we are not to commit adultery, but Jesus will show us that, that this means not even looking at someone with lust in our hearts. He gets to the core. He gets within us. He deals with us from within. The letter of the law was interpreted to permit divorce, but Jesus allowed uh, showed that the real intention was to honor marriage. The letter of the law permitted the use of oaths, but Jesus showed that the intention was to promote the telling of the truth. He's going to address an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which the law permitted, but Jesus showed that, that the intention was to call us to turn the other cheek. The letter of the law said that we should love our neighbor, but Jesus will show that the intention was also to love our enemy. That's a hard one. Our Lord brought obedience to God's commandments down to the heart level. And the only way this can truly happen is if we are given a new heart. We have to be born again. We've got to receive God's righteousness. And then he can do that work. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and keep And you will keep my judgments and do them. So God's desire is to give us a new heart. God does not. Well, God does this for those who repent and they give their lives to him. And then after we give our lives to him, after we're born again, we are not to set aside his law but to keep it by by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace. And he's our master. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled it in accomplishing what the scriptures promised. 
and he will see to it till heaven and earth pass away. Nothing of the law will ever fail. But he doesn't say to us, he doesn't tell us, okay, I fulfilled the law. You're now released from any obligation to it. You no longer have to keep it. No, that's not what he says. Instead, our Lord desires that we continue. We continue to keep his word. We're not to quit. As his people, as his disciples, we must make sure that we honor his word. And we live in conformity to it. He wants to do a transforming work in us and through us. Through his incredible scriptures. Unless a person's righteousness exceeds that superficial, outward, religious conformity that characterized the scribes and the Pharisees, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, one of the characteristics of someone who is true, a true disciple of Jesus Christ is that they have a transformed heart with respect to the word of God. In other words, they love God's word as Jesus loved it. And they seek to honor it. As he honored it. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Charles Spurgeon said, These are solemn words of warning. God grant that we may have a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness inwrought by the Spirit of God, a righteousness of the heart and of the life. So I pray that these truths tonight would would even draw us back to go back into the Beatitudes and to be those who are poor in spirit before God and we would mourn over our short fallenness when we look at it in view of God's holy requirements. And that we would be those who are meek before God in seeking his forgiving grace. And that we would be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be those who, like the person who wrote the hymn, can declare my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible word tonight. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to obey you. I pray that you would help us to seek you even deeper than we've ever sought you before, Lord. That you would reveal yourself in your word, Father, in an incredible way. That you would bring revival to your church, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening... Anyone on the internet, Lord, that has walked away from you or has never given their life to you, that tonight would be the night of salvation, that they would come back to their first love. And as we're, as we're praying right now, if there's anyone who fits that, who has never given their life to Jesus or has walked away, you can come back. You can give your life to him by praying this prayer. Father, forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Cleanse me. Wash me and make me new. I want to walk with you from this day forward. 
And I want to give my heart to you in Jesus' name. Amen.